If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. As you make your way there, uh, I want you to think about the theme of satisfaction this morning. I've entitled our time in God's Word uh, along those lines. It's a song for the satisfied. Psalm 16, amid Cam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word, and thank you for being a speaking God. Thank you for making us in your image and after your likeness. Thank you that this means that you can communicate to us and we can commune with you. What a sweet and high calling that the creator and sustainer of the earth is mindful of us. And so, Father, we open your word and read it and will now meditate upon it afresh. And I do pray that you will write your eternal truths upon our hearts, that we will be marked as those who love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and those who are deeply satisfied in you. Forgive us of our sins, beginning with the man right here. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When was the last time that you uh, witnessed or experienced deep satisfaction? Maybe you're a nursing mom and your child is crying in the middle of the night. Or maybe you're a dad and there's uh, milk frozen in the freezer. And either of you get up and it's your turn to change diapers and it's your turn to feed and as you change the, their diaper and, and feed them and burp them, you just watch them and they're satisfied. They don't need to be anywhere else. They don't need another thing. What they need is what you've offered them and you can see contentment on their little faces. Or maybe you're like me and we went on vacation and it was hard like leading up to it, just feeling like we needed a break and had a rough, uh, missed our first flight. I won't go into all the details, but, but that, 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 that image or that experience, when you finally make it to where you have been planning for months and you check in and you're in your hotel room and you open the window and you see red rocks around you, you anticipate seeing the Grand Canyon and there, when you behold it, you take that deep inhale, and then that exhale happens, and for a moment, you're satisfied. Or maybe you've been birthing a business, 
And it's been a lot of work. And the day has finally come. And it's done. And it's open. And you just look and you are satisfied with the way things turned out. Or maybe it's when you had a great meal and you've ordered an appetizer, you've ordered a pinot noir, you've ordered your meal, you've had dessert, and now you're, you're tapping out. Like, you put your forks on the plate to tell the waiter no more. Like, I don't need nothing else to drink or anything else to eat. Like, we are satisfied. What I need right now is a nap, right? Or maybe it was a really good movie you watched. Or maybe it was a bike ride and you left early enough or late enough to catch the sunset or the sunrise. Or maybe you were on the golf course and this hole that just gives you problems every time you play it, you finally played the dog leg right perfectly. And you felt satisfied that you don't, need, you don't need to take another shop or you don't need to go to another place, you don't need to eat another bite, that in that moment you have experienced satisfaction. This psalm is written from a place of satisfaction. It's written in a, at a time in David's life where he has experienced deep fulfillment and deep joy. And I think this psalm can be read in two ways. One, I think it, it can be read for those of us who have found this satisfaction and we're wanting to put words, proper words, that are worthy of our praise to the Most High God. Then Psalm 16 needs to be on your prayer list, I mean on your song list. But I also think we can read this psalm instructionally, that if we read it with faith, that David is actually taking us down a path, a path where all roads of satisfaction, they lead to God. And so wherever you are this morning, that, that is my hope that you will leave here deeply satisfied in your maker and in your king and in your God. And so I want to look at this under this first heading is that the satisfied embrace the possibility of present and stable satisfaction. That's the first point. The satisfied, satisfied people embrace the possibility of present, like right now, and stable, which means that it can endure whatever's happening around us, that, that, that we're embracing that possibility. That's the first point. So two things caught my attention. One is that you'll notice that, that David actually experiences deep satisfaction. Look at verse two. He's talking about all my delight. He's talking about in your presence, there is fullness of joy or joy to the full. In verse 11, there are pleasures at your right hand. Look at verse nine. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. In other words, David is like, he's making a big deal out of the satisfaction that he experiences right now. And what's, what's ironic is that this is not the resurrected David. This is not David on the other side of glory. This is like David who is walking Palestinian roads. This is like David who is dealing with stuff in life. And yet right here on this side of eternity, he actually says, my heart is full, that my joy is overwhelming. It's overflowing. So that's the first point, that, that it is possible. Second thing, notice how the psalm begins. Because it begins as if it's going to digress and be another psalm where David talks a lot about what's causing him harm and fear. Look at how it begins. Preserve me, O God, 
for in you I take refuge. It begins like he's about to lament. But this is actually a psalm of trust and a psalm of confidence. It begins with a cry of protection, but then very little ink is spent on telling us what is causing David to feel afraid. Ralph Davis says Psalm 16 isn't the on-edge air of emergency as some other psalms of David. This psalm is restful. He ponders what anchors him and not what is alarming him. Whew, ain't that good? He ponders what anchors him even though it begins with something alarming him. I think this is a reminder for us all. It's possible to have deep satisfaction now. And in our circles, we, all, we talk about the already and the not yet. Some things are already ours right now. And then some things are not yet ours, but they will be one day when Jesus makes all things new. And I tend to think and I tend to live like satisfaction goes inside of the not yet box. Well, when I get to see Jesus, I'm going to have overwhelming joy. And when I get to, to see the new heavens and the new earth, my heart will be full. And, but that's not this psalm. This psalm actually says that, that through Jesus and through his union with God, that these things are pulled into the here and now so much so that right now as fallen creatures on a fallen earth that our hearts can be overjoyed with satisfaction right now not just in the future that's the first thing that this psalm says but it pushes us a bit more it actually says you can even have this when your world is falling apart around you that when you're on the run that when you're scared Listen to what David says. The lines have already fallen for me in pleasant places. Verse 6. My heart is already glad. My whole being already rejoices. In your presence there is already fullness of joy. Even when I'm on the run. Therefore, the first thing this psalm holds out is that it's actually possible to have present satisfaction and stable satisfaction that is not dependent upon your circumstances. I think the beginning of finding this is actually believing that this is real. I don't always believe that. I buy into the lie that the world is broken, that I'm broken, I'm gonna have to wait on this joy and the gospel says no you can taste it right now it can break in right now you can be surprised by it right now do you believe that Jesus is that good that he can give that to you right now that's the first thing that the satisfied embrace this possibility the satisfaction can be now and it can be stable the second thing we learned in this passage is that the satisfied have learned that sorrows are multiplied when satisfaction is sought in the wrong places. I'm going to repeat that for you. The satisfied person 
We've been through some stuff. We, we've seen some stuff. We've lived long enough to realize that there are things out there that offer satisfaction, but in the end, they, 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 that their satisfaction does not endure. And, and worse than that, that as you chase these things that are false gods, that the sorrows come back upon you. And so the satisfied have learned that sorrows are multiplied when the satisfaction is sought in the wrong places. That's in verse four. Now, I'm not a country music fan, y'all. That if you were to get, if I were to give you kind of my, my phone and kind of let you see what I listen to, country music ain't nowhere in it. Karen and I went to New Orleans for our anniversary back in May. And so we asked some locals, like, man, bro, where do y'all go listen to music? I don't want to go to the tourist traps. Where do like local New Orleans people go to listen to live music? And so dude gave us the spot, and I looked it up, and I Googled it. And so we went that night, and it's kind of sketchy, right? Kind of, and all kinds of people in there, like professionals and white people and black people and dudes with dreads and dudes in business suits. Like, it, it was kind of one of them spots, right? And so they had this, this sweet band. And this band, like, that, you can tell this band, had, had, they, they travel with other famous artists, but they live in New Orleans, and so they play together when they're in New Orleans. And man, they started doing covers and taking requests from the audience. And they did this song called Tennessee Whiskey. And it's sang by Chris Stapleton. And I'm telling you, man, it didn't matter what color you were in that night. Like everybody was grooving to, to their cover of Chris Stapleton. And, and I was like out of my mind, like, what is this? Like, like what song is this? And so you can, you can ask my wife, like, we got in the car and I Googled him. I downloaded it on my phone and I listened to, I listened to Tennessee Whiskey three times <laughs> on the way from where we listened to music to the hotel. If you want to see something comical, Google, Google black people hear uh, Chris Stapleton for the first time. I, I, <laughs> I'm serious, like, you will see people, like, soulful brothers who, like, you will not forget his voice. Like, he can croon. I think that's what the old folks used to say. He a crooner. Anyway, in, in the song, he says, I've looked for love in all the same old places, and I found that the bottom of the bottle is always dry. I used to spend my night out in the bar room, and liquor was the only love I've known but you rescued me from reaching for the bottle and brought me back from being too far gone. That preaches because what he's saying is, I looked for love in the wrong places and the bottle was always dry. It never satisfied me. And you rescued me from reaching for the bottle. You brought me back from being too far gone. That is a confession. He's actually saying, not only did my idol not satisfy, but it took me places where I lost my job and I lost my family and my insurance rate quadrupled because of DUIs. He's saying that his idol that was wrong did more than not satisfy. It actually came back on him with vengeance. 
That's what David says in verse 4. Look at it. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. That multiply is an interesting word. We've seen it in the scriptures, haven't we? In the beginning, God told them to be fruitful and multiply. He told that to the fish and to all the animals. He told that to Adam and Eve. It's the theme in Exodus chapter 1 when the Israelites are multiplying so much so that Pharaoh has to say, bro, I, I got to knock some of them off. They're going to overtake us. It's this idea of, of exponential growth. That Think about the birds in the heavens and the, and the sea creatures and all the humans on the face of the earth. There has been multiplication. And what David says is that if you go after other idols, the sorrows are going to come after you in a, in a multiplicatory fashion. I just made that word up, right? <laughs> That's his whole point. If you try to find satisfaction in the wrong places, sorrows are going to follow you. This is why David says, all right, Lord, I see it. I won't even drink their, I won't even offer any blood or, or take their name on my lips. I'm going to distance myself so, so far from, what I, from, from them and what I've seen, I won't even mention their name. So here's an exercise to consider. Put any false idol of the world, things the world runs to for protection and pleasure and peace and significance, Put them right here on this imaginary stand and interrogate them. And every one of them will promise more than what they deliver. And every one of them will increase sorrows in your mind and body and soul and relationships. Tim Keller, he, he illustrates this in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, consider major league baseball players. So the idol here would be greatness. The idol here would be, I need to get that big contract. The idol here was, is to break record books. The idol here is to go down in the hall of fame. That, that is the idol, right? You can't be good. You have to be great. You can't be ordinary. You have to be extraordinary. And because that was the idol, then what you had some baseball players doing was taking steroids to get more home runs, to get bigger contracts. You had them taking performing, enhancing drugs to give them that advantage with that quick twitch, right? You had them doing, going down this path, and here's what Keller says. Not only are their bodies now more torn up, but their reputations are also. They put this thing on the pedestal and says, I have to have it. And look at what happened to them. Put any idol on any pedestal and don't simply ask, what is it promising me? Also ask the question, how will this harm? The satisfied have learned just from watching the world that it's dangerous to pursue satisfaction where it's not meant to be found. But if we're honest, we don't even need to see that in the world, do we? I think if we look at our own hearts, we see it. You know, David lusted after Bathsheba and killed her husband and covered it up. And they lost that child and the sword never left his kingdom. Later in life, he did a census and 70,000 Israelites died. 
When have you seen your own idols come back to make life miserable for you and for people you love? You see, I think like that, that's a valid question. And sometimes I'm scared to ask it. I'm scared to ask, man, what have my idols done to my marriage and to my children and to me? But if we're really, really honest, that's what this psalm is reminding us of. Idols come back and increase and multiply sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow. And if you're satisfied, you've learned that lesson. Dane Orland, in his book, Deeper, he has a chapter on pain and how God uses pain in the Christian life. He says, each of us is like an otherwise healthy vine that has a perverse inclination to entangle its tendrils around a poisonous tree that appears nourishing, but it actually deadens us. We have been warned that embracing this tree will kill us, but we can't help ourselves. We wrap ourselves around it. There is only one resort for the loving gardener. He must slice us free. He must lop off branches. He must cause us to pass through the pain of loss, of being diminished, of being lessened in order to free us. The world and its fraudulent offerings are like that poisonous tree, and our heavenly gardener is, loves us too much to let us continue to commit soul suicide by getting more and more deeply attached to the world. Through the pain of disappointment and frustration, God weans us from the love of this world, and it feels like we're being crippled, like we're dying. In point of fact, we're being freed from the counterfeit pleasures of the world. Whew, that's a good quote. Which moves us to our third point. The satisfied embrace this possibility of stable and present satisfaction. We also have learned the dangers of chasing satisfaction where it ought not be found because we've experienced and seen the sorrows that come with our own idolatry and the idolatry of the world. But the third point is here. We have found, the satisfied have found ultimate satisfaction in the presence of one. The satisfied have found ultimate satisfaction in the presence of one. We discover from the word and watching the world in our own lives that no true satisfaction is found in our causes, our appearances, our wealth, our health, our power, our titles, our earthly accomplishments. They're, they're not ultimate. God is. And we know this by looking at Jesus. By earthly standards, you might deem Jesus a failure. He never made that millie you chasing. He never went to college, never traveled the world and saw the beaches that some of us see in his humanity. He never saw America, Canada, the island of St. Vincent, Iceland or the Grand Canyon in his humanity. He didn't own a home, didn't have an earthly wife or children. He never started a Fortune 500 company and he did not win best dressed or most likely to succeed from Nazareth High School. But he had the greatest good. 
He had his God. And so the question that, that, that's before us is, can we be deeply satisfied and we're poor? Can you be deeply satisfied and you're a widow? Can you be deeply satisfied and you're single? Can you be deeply satisfied when you're passed over for that promotion? Can you be deeply satisfied when your business is unstable? Can you be deeply satisfied when cancer is reproducing in your body? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Because all those things will pass away. But God is your rock. And God is your shield. And God is your portion. Forever and ever and ever. And so this is what David says. He actually says in verse 1, Lord, you're my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. In verse 5, he says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. In verse 6, he says, I have a beautiful inheritance. And this is priestly language. The Levites did not get the land the same way the other tribes do. Joshua 13 says the tribe of Levi, Moses, gave no inheritance. The Lord, the God of Israel, is their inheritance. And David from the tribe of Judah is actually saying, make no mistake about it, I may have an inheritance, but my highest inheritance is not property lines. My highest inheritance is God himself. Look at verse 11. In your presence there is fullness of joy. You might remember Psalm 51 when, when David is lamenting and repenting of his sin and he is asking God not to take certain things from him. And you might be tempted to think that David's going to say, Lord, don't take the kingdom. Lord, don't take our military prowess. Lord, don't knock me off and, and, and make me not be king. David doesn't pray that. You know what David prays in Psalm 51? He says, Lord, do not cast me away from your presence. This is why Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, the thing that's going to make hell so hellish is the utter absence of God. He says, they, the unbelievers, will suffer the punishment of the eternal destruction. Well, what is the punishment of the eternal destruction? Paul says, away from the presence of the Lord, away from his glory and might. So that means right now, if you're not a believer, then right now you experience some of the common goodness of God right now. You're breathing because he lets you breathe. You're thinking because he lets your mind think that right now he is lavishing you with common grace. But what's going to make hell so hellish? He's withdrawing it all. It's why Moses says in Exodus 33, Lord, I will not go forward if your presence does not go with us. You've given us miracles. You've given us manna. But make no mistake about it. If you aren't going with me, if you're not with me, then I'm done. Do you see that the satisfied have learned that ultimate satisfaction is found in the presence and the purpose of God? Alicia Aiken in her book, Invitations to Abundance. It's our reflection quote, but I won't read all of it. I'll read the second half of it. 
She says, God's steadfast love is better than life itself. His love is more to be sought, more to be valued, more to be enjoyed. For it's better than life. Love warms the shadowed heart. It declutters the anxious mind. It buoys the sunken soul. By design, there are depths from only it can retrieve us and heights that only it can propel us. You, you hear what she's saying? Have you ever had the cluttered mind? Have you ever had the agony of soul? Have you ever had the anxiety that overtakes you? And all it takes is one moment in the presence of the Lord and peace be still comes upon you and your soul. The presence of God with you is one of the highest blessings of the Christian life. Your sins are forgiven. You have a new heart. You have peace of conscience. You have power to change. But the final words out of Jesus' mouth to his disciples is all power on heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he says, and lo, I am with you even until the end of the age. And that is what rings in their ears. When we're in prison, he's with us. When we're beheaded, he's with us. When we're disagreeing over missional strategy, he's with us. When we wake up at 737 and have our quiet time, he's with us. And when we're too tired to get up and roll out of the bed, he's with us. When we do it right with parenting, he's with us. And when you blow it, he's with us. He's with you in the valley. He's with you in the heights. One of the pinnacle marks of being united to Jesus is his presence. God with us. He is with you. Our hearts were made to inhale this promise. You know, you go on vacation and you inhale. Satisfaction. Your heart was made to inhale these truths and to exhale satisfaction in God through Jesus. And David's found it. But notice he says in verse 8, verse 9, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices. But verse 8, he says, but I set the Lord before me. I think this is working this way. He's found satisfaction in God, and he, but he cultivates this by setting the Lord before himself. He works to practice the presence of God, and God meets him by coming to God in faith over and over again, by coming to him in the word, and coming to him in worship, by coming to him in meditation, and prayer, and singing, that the Lord meets Meets him and keeps meeting him and keeps satisfying him. It is this well that keeps spilling over into the heart of David. And if you're a Christian, this is yours for the taking. It's yours for the enjoyment. And if you're not a Christian, all the fleeting, satisfying things like sex and money and pleasure they're pointers to the giver of those things. Which moves us to our last point. Some of the manifold pleasures that come with finding our satisfaction in the Lord. I want to list a few of the manifold pleasures that come to us as we find satisfaction in the Lord. Now look at verse 11. David says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. 
Then he says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see what David is doing? I think he's holding out two things for us. That God's presence brings satisfaction. Just communing with him, being with him, being indwelled by him. But as we draw near to him and find satisfaction in him as a person, you realize that there are blessings to us that are accrued to us because of relationship with the person. And so David is not saying we circumvent the person to get the blessings. He's actually saying as you draw near to the person, there are periphery blessings that are now yours because you are tied to the person. Now, this works in a human realm, doesn't it? My dad's youngest brother, is, his name is Tommy, and I've never known Uncle Tommy to ever stay in the States. He graduated from Provine, and he enlisted in the Air Force, and Uncle Tommy was stationed instantly to Okinawa, and he has never moved back. He has a Japanese wife. I have two half-black, half-Japanese cousins, Aya and Tanya. And so you can kind of imagine a black man is living in Japan. Like, so whenever Uncle Tommy came home, I just wanted to go over and just be with Uncle Tommy. I wanted to be there as soon as his, his, his van pulled in the driveway. I wanted to go be with my Uncle Tommy. And here's the thing about Uncle Tommy. He always came with some luggage. And so you see Uncle Tommy and he kind of joke with you for a little while. And then he tiptoed to the back and he come back with this extra suitcase. And he just kind of opened it up. And in the suitcase was Japanese stuff, like Japanese toys and Japanese gadgets and Japanese uh, candy and Japanese food and Japanese clothing and Japanese shoes and Japanese sake. <laughs> and occasionally he would bring his Japanese wife and my Japanese cousins. Here's the thing. His presence always brought blessings and gifts. And so when David says God's presence, there is fullness of joy. But at your right hand, you got some other stuff that, that, that's now mine because of my union with you. And this is not an exhaustive list. But I think David would want us to scour Psalm 16. Well, what are the pleasures, David? What are these pleasures at the right hand of God that are ours in addition to finding satisfaction in his presence? Well, what are they? I want to give you four and we'll close it. The first is a forever family. Look at verse three. It does not seem to fit, y'all. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. What? <laughs> you catch that? You hear what David is saying? I love the people of God. That's what a God's pleasurable gifts to me is one another. I have him and now I got them. And so when David surveys the whole world of all the people who brings him delight, you want to know who makes him smile? You want to know who he's willing to die for? You want to know who he finds great delight in? It's the saints. Boy, look at them. 
They're sinners, but we're on our way to the same king. Look at the way they practice hospitality. Look at the way they forgive. Look at the way they outdo one another in doing good. Look at the way that they practice self-control. Look at the way that they repent and own up for their iniquities. Look at the way that they care for the poor. David is surveying the world, and he is saying, there is no one like them here. And so it's a lie. You can have God. And hate his church. Psalm 16 says, no, you're lying, partner. That ain't the truth. God is the highest gift. But one of his pleasurable gifts to you is the church. People to walk with you and to bear burdens and to show up when you're grieving and to love you. That's a pleasurable gift. The other one is a beautiful inheritance and the path to it. Verse six and verse one. David knows that he has a beautiful inheritance in the Lord, but he is also aware that it is in the future. That is being guarded and built by God himself. We know that because he's talking about being rescued from Sheol. So David has this view, this theology that, yes, I'll die, but there is something on the other side of death. And we now know more fully, more than what David knew, that our inheritance is being guarded and kept for us by Christ Jesus himself. And so David sees, I know that I have an inheritance, but God is not out to trick you. He actually has a path of life to get you there through faith in Jesus And God is so good, he's keeping the inheritance, he's revealed the path, he's put you on the path, and he's going to walk your tail all the way home because he loves you. That's a pleasurable gift that is ours. Look at verse 7. We have a wonderful counselor who will lavish us with wisdom from above. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. That word is advice. Even in the night, my heart will instruct me. Do you remember a time when you lacked wisdom and you didn't know the way up from the way down and you had to make hard decisions? Nothing is worse than staying in your own head and relying on your own wisdom. David says, I got a counselor and he don't keep office hours. He don't slumber nor sleep. He never tells me to come back later. His door is always open. And he is so beautiful, y'all, that I can take things to him. And when I lay down at night to go to sleep, that he can begin to instruct my heart so that the things that I prayed for and sought when I wake up the next morning, there is more clarity than it was the day before. And it was not because I was up at night toiling. It was because I gave this to the Lord and the Lord himself met me in the night even when I was sleeping to make me more wise today than yesterday. You have a counselor. The Christian is never, ever, ever alone because God is your wonderful counselor. Which leads us to the last thing. You have unmitigated security. You are invincible. Notice what David says, my flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. David is saying one of the pleasures of God is our invincibility. Does he mean we can't get sick or drown or get cancer? That's not what he means. 
He foresees a day when all things will be made new and all sad things will become untrue. He's not the one that's going to bring that promise of invincibility. He looks for his son, the greater David, who's going to come later and pour out this blessing. Now, how do we know? Because in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching that famous sermon, Peter quotes this song. And he says, David is dead. His tomb is with us to this day. David, being a prophet, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has been raised from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. Through him, we have received the Spirit. That's the key, because what Peter is saying is that David wrote more than he knew. David saw the, the, his invincibility, but he saw that he wasn't going to be the one to bring it. He wrote about another, and this other was King Jesus, his son, and his son's son. King Jesus would come. King Jesus would live. King Jesus would die. King Jesus would go in the ground, and God would not let King Jesus see corruption. God would raise King Jesus from the grave three days later, and Jesus was ascended to the right hand, and God, through Jesus, has now poured out these blessings, and they cascade to us from him. We are invincible because Jesus has conquered hell, death, and the grave. We believe that our bodies will go on the ground, but we believe that one day when Jesus returns, he's going to raise us, and he's going to make us new, and he's going to make all things new, and therefore we have hope right now. These are the pleasures that David is saying is ours through God in Jesus. Do you want these pleasures of invincibility, of wisdom, of righteousness, of a forever family? Bow the knee. Come to Jesus. Are they already yours? Respond the way David does. Bless the Lord. Set him before you. Sing this song of satisfaction. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for meeting us. Thank you for satisfying our deepest desires. Thank you for putting signposts in the world to point us to the ultimate source of our satisfaction. Father, I pray for those who might not know you. Might today be a day, Lord, where the gospel is clear that these things are ours in and through Christ. Bless us now, Lord, as we turn our hearts uh, to the supper. Minister to your people, I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.